So essentially Solomon was living the life of a modern day rap star. And with that, we're back to podcasting here at chiefend.org. Uh, haven't been here, haven't seen you guys in a while. What's up? hope everybody's doing well. It is Friday, June 8th. Um, so I am getting at least one podcast in a month, um, but did run into, as I sort of anticipated I would, uh, you know, it gets hard to continually critique people um, in these... Uh, circus acts of popular ministry things. Um, and you just get kind of exhausted with it. So I took after, uh, after that May 1st episode gospel as product and our proclivity to assume greatness. Um, I decided to spend May just reading uh, the Bible and, uh, not really focusing on, on people who are butchering the, the wonderful, beautiful tapestry of eternal salvation uh, for their own profit and own gain. And it was actually a good month, a good month of, of not paying attention, um, although there is such a deluge of psychopaths uh, proclaiming the name of, of uh, Christ to profit themselves. It is almost impossible to go through a month without coming across some uh, piece of nonsense, um, which I think this month was the Jesse du Duplantis clown uh, looking to raise 54 million bucks for his third jet, maybe, maybe his fourth jet, third or fourth jet, which, um, you know, if you pay attention to that kind of stuff, it's not uh, new, because I think back in 2015, Creflo Dollar uh, which is a great name for a pastor, changing your last name to Dollar. Uh, he was seeking to raise 65 mil um, for his ministerial uh, globe trotting. And then you've got guys like Ed Young and Ed Young Jr., who are both in the top 10 largest churches in America. And in order, I guess Ed Young loves fishing in, the, in South Florida. And in order to justify taking his church's private jet to Florida, he um, he planted a church or planted a satellite campus in South Florida just minutes from his favorite fishing spot um, so that he can technically, pardon me while I uh, press down my French press and pour me a piping hot cup of a Java. Anyway, yeah, so I think he put a satellite campus in South Florida. So he's, on, he's mere minutes, mere minutes from his favorite deep sea uh, fishing place. Um, so anyway, yeah, there's, there's always going to be some JA, and if you don't know what JA stands for, I suggest you urban dictionary it, uh, but there's always going to be some JA who is self-aggrandizing, um, and profiteering off the glorious tapestry and beauty of God's grace, mercy, eternal salvation, etc., etc. So I've been reading, I uh, decided to pick up the Old Testament in the book of, in the book of, in the May, <laughs> in the month of May, um, and made it through almost done with first Kings. Uh, and it's, there's definitely, I mean, the Old Testament, you understand why secular professors say that God is a genocidal, homicidal maniac at times, because some of the 
the violence that is outlined in the Old Testament is really alarming, um, especially as it relates to the quote-unquote enemies of Israel uh, throughout the Old Testament books, um, but also even God's judgment towards either those enemies, quote-unquote enemies of Israel, or towards his own people Israel when they uh, are said to have turned away from God. The the violence is quite alarming. It's quite shocking. Um, and I'm not here to, uh, to make a defend that or, or, or criticize it or anything. I'm just saying that's what the Old Testament says. And I actually think that probably the, the Christian witness would be served better if we just sort of took those passages at face value instead of trying to explain them away. Because I, hearkening back to yesteryear, <laughs> I, I do remember two college professors in particular who had a very hard time with Christianity based upon the violence in the Old Testament. So uh, probably best to just, yeah, acknowledge that it's there and not try to deny it or say, well, it doesn't really mean that. Well, yeah, it does kind of mean that when thousands of people are beheaded and there are people gutted and their intestines spill out. And it's like, a, it's actually kind of like a Rocky, uh, not Rocky, um, a Rambo movie. I don't know if you guys saw the latest Rambo movie from like 2008. That was by far the most violent movie. Um, and a buddy that I worked with at the time, uh, Jake, he and I were huge Rambo fans and Rocky fans as well, but especially uh, Rambo fans. And when that Rambo came out, we decided to go see it and sort of relive our youth. Um, and boy, talk about a, a violent film. And every parent who was in there with their eight-year-olds, they definitely won parent of the year. Um, and if you don't know what sarcasm is, I suggest you go to Urban Dictionary and look up that word as well. Right along there with J.A. No, I'm not kidding. We walked into this theater, sat down, and before, before the opening previews rolled, there were two sets of parents who brought their kids in, and the kids were no older than 10. And Jake and I were just appalled. We were like, you have to be kidding me. I mean, we understand that this is sliced alone, and it's probably going to air on the side of cheese. Uh, but then the movie got going, and I, I don't recall seeing such uh, grotesque on-screen violence um, than, than when I saw Saving Private Ryan. That was probably right up there. And I think, I think that Rambo was even probably more shocking in its violence because, uh, I mean, it wasn't necessarily, well, I don't know. I don't know my, I do not know my Southeast Asia history. So maybe there is, uh, there probably is knowing human nature. There probably is, uh, genocide and genocidal maniacs, uh, running ramp rampant throughout that region. But I digress. Um, this is, uh, chief end episode 11. And I believe I started by saying that, so essentially Solomon was living the life of a modern day rapper. <laughs> and so this, it's this line out of first uh, Kings. So anyway, all of that to say, I spent May and I'm rhyming again. I don't know. I always get on these stupid <laughs> rhymes, um, but I, I spent all of May uh, just blocking out 
ministerial clown faces and just reading the Bible, and my soul was uh, well served by doing that. So I would suggest that perhaps you do that as well. Um, but this morning in First Kings, something really jumped out at me as kind of funny. First um, Kings chapter ten, uh, verse twenty-two, for the king Solomon had a fleet of ships of Tarshish, Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. And then this line, once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come into port, bringing gold, silver, ivory apes, and peacocks. <laughs> like what a random stinking list. Gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. And it just made me think of rat videos. Like how many, I, I'm sure there's been multiple rat videos with peacocks in them. There's definitely been rat videos with silver and gold and ships and ivory and diamonds. I'm not too sure about the apes. I can't recall a rat video where I've seen uh, an ape or a monkey. I can't really think of any. What are, uh, there, was, there was Mike Tyson with a tiger, I think, was a thing for a while. But Mike Tyson really wasn't a rapper. Um, yeah, so I have no reference point for that. But just the, the spectacle of that whole sentence of gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Just hilarious. And it made me think, wow, Solomon really was blinging it. Um, and that's not a critique against Solomon. Um, it's clear earlier on in uh, his, his narrative, his story, that he asks God, it says, ask God for anything. And he asks God for wisdom. And God's response, according to the Old Testament scriptures, is that God says, essentially, because you asked for wisdom and not for wealth, I'm going to grant you wealth. Um, now, that you can see how easy that is to uh, try to pull one over on the Lord God Almighty today and say, oh, I'm just going to ask for wisdom and then I'll be in a Lambo. Um, but it's very clear that God that God gave Solomon uh, great, tremendous wealth, and just blessed his kingdom, blessed his his leadership reign with just ridiculous amounts of of material uh, wealth and material possessions. I mean, you read through the details of the palace that he built for himself. And I'm not too sure what the going rate of a cedar of Lebanon is back in the day, but um, I'm assuming that it's kind of equivalent to imported Italian tile today um, or whatever, insert whatever, the most expensive uh, home accessory you can think of. In fact, there's even a thing where the Queen of Sheba brings, um, and the king made of, uh, let's see here. Um, so she brought, Almug, A-L-M-U-G, Almug wood. Never even heard of Almug wood. I'm sure I could Google it and find out what it was. Um, she brought Almug wood and precious stones, and the king made of the Almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such Almug wood has come or been seen to this day. So apparently this was, Almug wood was either rare or it had not been uh deforested to the extent that it was by Sheba and her uh, forced slaves. <laughs> you say, wait a second, slavery didn't exist. This was a long time ago. There was no black-white tension. Newsflash, slavery is not a black-white issue. Thank you. Um, this is the point that I try to make in modern 
uh, discussions of of this whole racial tension stuff. And it's really, I think, uh, I don't, I don't know. I'll just say it. It's dumb. It's dumb and ignorant and short-sighted and oblivious to the rest of human history to say that slavery is a black-white issue. Wrong. Read history that goes back farther than 240-some years, 340-some years, perhaps, with um, pilgrims coming to America with African slaves in tow. Um, read about the intertribal slavery of Africa. Read about the South American slavery between the Mayans and the Aztecs. Read about slavery in the Old Testament. It was not a black-white issue. It's always been a those in power oppress those who are not in power. It's always that the trait of mankind, of human history, is that those in power oppress and abuse those not in power. It's strong, taking advantage of weak. And yes, it just so happens that throughout American history, or the early part of American history, it took the form of white-skinned people being in power and darker-skinned people not being in power. So yes, it took that form. But to just say that it's a black-white issue is extremely short-sighted, um, and it is, it's, I, I won't even say ignorant, it's a denial of the rest of uh, human history as it comes to those in power abusing those not in power. Um, and why do I bring that up? I don't know, because it's there, and I can imagine that uh, Queen Sheba, in order to get such a bounty of Almagwood, uh, probably enlisted the help of her family members. No, probably enlisted the help of forced slaves, which is earlier in 1 Kings 9. It This is funny. Um, it, says, it says Solomon, 1 Kings 9, verse 15. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted. <laughs> so it's like a draft, but forced labor at the same time. Pretty, pretty funny. And then it goes on to show all the people that he uh, had drafted into forced labor in order to do all of these, build these crazy big construction projects using almond wood and cedar and gold and all these things. So where am I heading with this? What's, what's the spiritual implication of uh, getting almost through first Kings uh, in the month of May? Uh, well, it led me, I think that the, the, the rub where the rubber has met the road in my soul this month, and I'm going to take a sip of coffee. I tried to sip it extra loud so you could actually hear me sipping the coffee, and thankfully I didn't inhale it down my windpipe and choke and die. There is such a thing as dry drowning, by the way, where apparently like you just get a little bit of moisture in your windpipe, and then it like causes it to spasm and then won't open. Terrifying. So think of that the next time you sip on a cup of coffee. Um, I'm definitely going to be thinking of that. So here's here's the thing. Um, here's where the rubber has met the road. The road has met the rubber. Uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 10, verse 21. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon 
were of pure gold. None were of silver, for silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. So, that's where the rubber has met the road in my soul this month, and it's been the uh, source of what I've been uh, contemplating. And it's this concept that the wealth in Solomon's kingdom was so extravagant. It was so out of pocket, you might say, with the modern Post Malone lingo. Um, it was so redonkulous that silver was considered as nothing. And I think if we pause there, if we take our eyes off of moron pastorpreneurs and we actually turn them onto the scripture and we rest there and we wait and we ponder and we meditate on that truth and what's going on there, I think there is a tremendously valuable nugget um, to fuel our souls on our pilgrimage to heaven. To ponder that the, the material wealth of Solomon's kingdom was so great that silver was considered as nothing. You know, I remember back to when we, I took a, a five-week, five-week mission trip down to Nicaragua um, in the late 90s with, with uh, the youth ministry that I was involved in. And I remember seeing, we, we went out, we were walking around uh, Managua, and there were just these, these paper bills, dollar currency, paper currency blowing around. And in America, paper currency is valuable. It's not really, but mentally we think of if we saw paper currency on the ground, we'd be like, hey, that's, that's money. And we would pick it up and it would have some value. And so I was bending over and picking these up and I was like, there's just money flying around, like, wow. And the, uh, the, one of our hosts, our guides, he was like, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, there's money. And he goes, oh, that's, he goes, that's like less than a penny for you. He goes, it's completely worthless. And I thought, ah, okay, so we have these different value systems which assign uh, different importance to uh, different uh, assets or different things that we treasure. And so then realizing that those paper bills blowing around were like a tenth of a penny, it was like, yeah, why, why would I even waste my time? I mean, I picked up six of them. That's six tenths of a penny. What am I going to do with six tenths of a penny? Sure as heck not going to be able to convert it back to U.S. currency. And even if I could swindle somebody into giving me a penny for six tenths of a penny, what am I going to do with a penny? So it made me think of that. Um, it makes me think of Revelation when it talks about heaven having streets of gold. And I think the temptation there is to say, ooh, heaven is so valuable. Heaven is so amazing that it's going to be lined with streets of gold. I think that's the wrong take. I, I think the proper take is that the, the person who occupies heaven, namely God's presence, is so valuable and so worthwhile that it's just gold on the streets. So instead of rough asphalt and cracked concrete, which we don't dig up, it's not like anybody's out with a jackhammer on the main boulevard in your town, jackhammering up asphalt so that they can store it under their mattress or take it and put it in a safe deposit box. No, it's asphalt. Nobody cares about asphalt. It's hot and it's sticky and it's smelly. 
And yeah, it's better than a dirt road, but nobody cares about asphalt. And I think that's the point of the streets of, of heaven being streets of gold is that it's putting these value comparisons uh, before us and, and forcing us to ponder what they mean. And so if God's presence, if, if God himself, if possessing that friendship and that relationship is so valuable, and that's what heaven is, is, is face-to-face communion with the presence of God, then of course it would make sense that the streets would be gold because they're in comparison to God's presence worth nothing. They're, they're the equivalent to asphalt. Um, this passage also made me think of Paul the Apostle when he says that he counts all things as dung compared to the knowledge of God the Son. Serious as heart attacks, took off my martyr's hat, put on my starter's cap, radical to the core, explore the path we travel. Anyway, that's some 90s cross movement creeping back into my memory banks. I did memorize a lot of cross movement back in the day. In fact, I probably knew four songs of verbatim, and much to my children's current chagrin, I do like to uh, bust out the cross-movement uh, rapping in the presence of their friends in our pimped-out minivan. Um, which brings me to another topic. I, I've been pondering... <laughs> oh, the funny life of being a parent. Um, I've been pondering. I really want to wrap our minivan in black mat. Like you see, I've seen a couple G-Wagons, a couple uh, nice Mercedes-Benz that have, they're wrapped in this matte black finish and they just look so stinking tight. Uh, so I told the kids I want to wrap our minivan in Mac, matte black and then throw some like 20 inch rims on it. And they just rolled their eyes. Um, although two of their friends have told me that if I did that, they would go everywhere with us in that minivan. So there's, there's some food for thought um, for you other parents out there wrapping the family wagon uh, matte black finish with some 20-inch rims. That would be pretty fly. Where was I? Um, cross movement. Yeah, I did memorize a lot of cross movement, and I do like to still wrap it to this day, as you can tell, because just equating a scripture uh, that they wrapped set off like six lines worth of rhyming. Um... One of their most profound lines, they say, stick into the cross, but without the use of nails. And you say, great is the mystery, mister, we don't understand. I'm sparking as I'm walking through this winter wonderland. In some timberlands, while I'm spitting out the gospel. Don't get hostile, it's complex, but it's not so. Hard to understand, but then again, it is for some. The mystery of the one who is and one who is to come. Um, but... The line, sticking to the cross, but without the use of nails, is a very profound statement. It's amazing how much cross movement has fed my soul over the years, to be honest. Um, yeah, some other lines are cheesy. Yeah, nobody knows about them outside of a handful of uh, Christian theology rap nerds from the late 90s. But it is amazing how much they have benefited my soul with, with solid, substantive, spiritual truth that was wrapped in lingo that I remembered. It just stuck with me. Um, they have another line. Every time we get to that scripture where it says the son of man had no place to lay his head, um, they rephrase that to say the son of man had no place to lay his Afro sacred tabernacle, dwelling prevailing against the gates of Helen, sticking to the cross, but without the use of nails, blah, 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 blah. Um, 
So every time I hear that verse, the son of man had no place to lay his head. I always want to say Afro sacred tabernacle. Um, anyway, side note, random side note, uh, maybe to say that what you put into your brain uh, sticks with you. So don't be putting junk into your brain. Maybe that's what Christ was getting at when he talked about if your whole, if your eye is bad, the whole eye, the whole body will be full of darkness. But if your eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. Maybe that's what he was getting at, that things we put into our eyes and our ears uh, can stick with us for quite some time. Um, anyway, cross movement, good theologically sound rap, which communicated some very profound spiritual truths. Um, so ponder that this month too. Uh, sticking to the cross, but without the use of nails uh, means he willingly went to the cross. He willingly was a lamb led to the slaughter. Um, and that's really humbling. If, if, if the chief end of our life on earth here between now and heaven is humility, if we ponder that Christ stuck to the cross without the use of nails, that should put us on our knees in reverence, in awe, in humility. And when we're there, we should, we should come up from that gentle and meek and kind and caring um, because I don't really see any other, uh, response in the Bible for how that mystery works. Um, when, when the Lord reveals himself to us in those amazing ways that he would condescend and willingly go to the cross, not forced, um, wasn't held there with nails. He was held there out of his own volition. Um, it was really, really mind boggling, especially considering that by him and through him and for him were all things created, that he uh, measures the universe with a span of his fingers and that he would condescend to, to do that, um, to demonstrate mercy. Very, very, very crazy. Mind-blowing. Um, so it made me think of Paul the Apostle with the dung. I count all things as dung. That's where, that's where I went off was the, the cross movement. I count all things as dung compared to the knowledge of God, the son, serious as heart attacks. Okay. All that thing. So Paul, the apostle said that he counts all things as dung compared to the knowledge of Christ. So this, this passage out of, uh, first Kings 10, where in the kingdom of Solomon, silver was counted as nothing made me think of that as well. It also sadly, and not sadly, it also makes me think of the sad account of Judas where he counted silver as being everything. He was the complete antithesis of this picture out of Solomon's kingdom. He was the complete antithesis of Paul the apostle saying he counts all things as dung compared to the knowledge of Christ. Judas was the complete opposite. He flipped the script in a very soul-damaging way. He counted 30 pieces of silver to be everything and he counted the knowledge of Christ to be nothing. And I don't think that it's any surprise that he ended up dangling from a fig tree with his entrails spilling out a la Rambo style. Because talk, if, if, if you did that, if you sold, it, it also reminds me of Esau. Okay, he, who sold his birthright for a piece of meat. We're not even talking about s silver, which might appreciate in value. 
We're talking about Esau selling his entire birthright for a piece of meat. That meat's not going to appreciate. It's going to, if you don't eat it, it's going to decay and be worthless. And if you do eat it, it'll sustain you for a very short period of time. And then you will defecate it out and it'll be just worm food and fertilizer for the ground. So Esau, man, talk about, talk about a bad investment. I mean, that's like buying land in Rio Rancho or something. I mean, that's just a debacle. He traded his birthright for a piece of meat. I hadn't even thought about that uh, comparison until just now. Um, but you think of you think of Judas counting thirty pieces of silver as everything, and the knowledge of Christ as nothing. It's the complete opposite of what I believe the the spiritual truth and spiritual soul lesson that's getting driven home through this concept in First Kings ten is trying to get through to us. It's trying to get through to God's people that in the midst of incredible, immeasurable, never before seen wealth, aka God's presence, aka God communing with us via the word, via the Holy Spirit. My kids say via, I think it's via. Um, In light of such glorious treasure, Silver is counted as nothing. And so then we can extrapolate. If we're equating the wealth of Solomon's kingdom to the presence of God, relationship with God Almighty, then we can take the silver and we can extrapolate that into things that we treasure now. It could be man's praise. It could be a job promotion. It could be a nicer house. It could be a nicer car, a better zip code the vacation you've dreamed about certain brand brand uh, names of clothing, certain must have logos on your shirt or your shoes. I mean, there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of things that this silver can embody for us that tempt us to go the route of either Judas or Esau to where we are willing to sell the incomprehensible treasure and wealth of God's presence for either a piece of meat or a bag of silver coins. You see, this always, when I was in youth group, like either in youth group or or a youth pastor, kind of the youth culture, youth ministry culture, always took these examples and they put it in terms of, you know, like standing up for, you know, Jesus in school. Um, you know, don't, if somebody cracks a joke about a Christian, like you got to stand up and say, Hey, that's not right. I'm a Christian too. And I get it. I mean, to some level, yes. Um, our character is built on not being afraid of criticism of not being afraid of, uh, you know, you want to be a good soldier for the Lord. Um, in fact, there's, there's like Jesus camps and stuff back in the day that they used to stress this, like, you got to be a good soldier for the Lord, like go out and, you know, defend him. And it's all fine and great. I mean, there's, I I, I get it. There's nothing wrong with that um, necessarily, but it is incomplete if it never goes beyond just that physical defense of God and his word. And if it never goes beyond that and it never permeates the barrier 
of our heart to get down into what our heart desires and what our affections are, then it's incomplete. And I think that there's a lot of Christians who've grown up in the church um, over the last 20 or 30 years that have equated their Christianity not with this wealth perspective of God's presence being my inheritance, God's presence being my wealth, but they've equated it to doing the right thing socially, not laughing at the joke or, um, you know, not listening to that song or insert whatever, voting for the quote unquote right candidate. Um, and it's so dead. That's so not, it's such a, a sliver. It's such a sliver of what the Christian experience is. The Christian experience is learning to commune with God's presence. And that sounds like a wacky concept because it's mysterious. I mean, John Owen was probably the most famous Puritan who talked about this whole concept of our soul communing with God here in this life. In fact, he wrote an entire book on it called The Communion of God. And it's massive and it's lengthy and it's wordy, but there's so many good things in it. Um, and it drives home the point that between now and when we draw our last breath and enter eternity, the whole point, the main point of being a Christian is communing with God's presence. We do that through prayer. We do that through the word of God dwelling richly in our hearts. We do that through relying on the helper, aka the Holy Spirit who Christ sent to, as he says in the book of John 16 and in John 14, essentially to quote, take the Holy Spirit will take of what is mine. Christ's says this, he will take of what is mine, Christ's, and he will show it unto you is the point of the Holy Spirit. So you have this whole concept of this eternal storehouse of spiritual soul riches, contentment, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. You have this vast storehouse of these eternal spiritual riches that are just waiting to be accessed through prayer and the word and God working in us and his gracious mercy towards us to open our eyes, to understand his word and to see this life as being temporary. That's the Christian experience. And if we would focus on that as individual Christians, we would be so much happier. We would be so much more content. We would be so much more stable. Um, we talk about this uh, down here in, in when you live by water, you're, you get familiar with the, the term ballast. There's a place down here called Ballast Point, and it's where ships stopped to take on ballast. And if you don't know what ballast is, don't go to Urban Dictionary because I doubt it's there, uh, but go to a regular dictionary. It's essentially the weight that you put in the bottom of a boat to sink it into the water to help stabilize it. And I've heard a lot of pastors talk about, oh, what the ballast is in your life. Is it the suffering? Is it the temptation? Is it the trial? Is it the difficulty? Oh, it's all this weighty things. The most useful ballast, and I think the most biblically consistent ballast for the life of the Christian is God's presence. It's communing 
with God. It's learning to commune with God's presence here on earth. And you don't do that through superficial means. You do that through what the Puritans used to call closet time. Get into your closet. You, the word, God's presence, prayer. Pour your heart out to him. Tell him, Lord, I value silver more than I value you. And the silver for me takes on these forms and list business success, cars, houses, uh, career advancement, popularity, recognition, whatever it is. Could be anything. But that's where the communion with God is going to take place. That's going to be the ballast for your soul as you sail through life's seas, so to speak. So I'm actually glad that I've been reading the Old Testament again. Um, and I'm glad that I've taken my eyes off of the moron circus three ring juggling acts of popular Christianity, because they really don't provide any ballast. They provide, um, in fact, I think they provide a lot of temptation to go astray um, because they they either will lead you astray wholeheartedly, like you'll buy hook, line, and sinker, the crap that they're selling, and you'll go astray not realizing that you've been duped, or you see the folly of their ways and it just causes you to grow cold and bitter, and you begin to equate them with God, and that's never a good equation to make. So... My ex exhortation to anyone listening to this ye old podcast, <laughs> episode 12, is to take your eyes off of a man, uh, fix them squarely on Jesus, who the writer of Hebrews says is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, which is another picture of this Solomon's thing. H how did Christ count, how did he endure the cross, despising its shame? Well, he had a proper view of God's wealth perspective. He knew that eternity, he knew that the redemption of sinners and eternal communion with his people and with God's presence was pentultimate, I think is the right word. It was the ultimate value. And so he did not sell that for a piece of meat or for 30 pieces of silver. Um, so Christ himself understood this wealth paradigm. Um, so I would implore you to consider this. I would implore you to ponder your wealth system. Like what do you view currently as being wealth? What do you view as being valuable? What does your heart treasure and cherish? And allow the word of God, allow the presence of God, allow the communion of of your soul with God's presence become more and more valuable to you. And, and as you do that, you're going to experience the assurance. And this is what the Puritans talked about, that assurance was the choicest heavenly graces or the choicest heavenly mercies was this concept of assurance that as you commune with God and he detangles your soul's affections to all of this silver that you currently think is so valuable 
as he loosens your grip on all those pieces of silver that you think are just so valuable and your soul has to have them in order to survive and to be happy. As God's graciously detaches you from those pieces of silver, he then begins to show you that those pieces of silver really aren't that valuable. And then he begins to show you that what really is valuable is his presence. It's his word. It's communing with him. And as that happens, he gives this choice grace, choice mercy called assurance, which is this ever-growing confidence of the, the wealth of your inheritance in Christ, the value of your inheritance in Christ. I believe it's Ephesians that talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ, that Christ has blessed us with unsearchable riches. Um, so I hope all that makes sense. It's been making sense to me. Hopefully uh, the words that are coming out of my mouth are articulating that uh, in a fashion or in a way that it makes sense to anyone else listening to this. Um, if you feel like there's a Christian you know that needs to ponder these concepts and to detangle their, their hearts and souls and minds, affections from the things of the earth, um, feel free to pass this along uh, and hopefully they will benefit from it as my soul has benefited from uh, these concepts in the Old Testament. Um, and if you just need some comic relief, it's just funny to think of Solomon uh, living the life of a modern-day rap video. <laughs> With gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Have a wonderful day, and we will chat at you later. Questions, comments, or whatever, you can send to podcast at chiefn.org. Have a great weekend.